0: Isn't it wonderful to have these young folks. We have Jordan Kinsley and Joseph today. Two from Anderson College, one from Clemson. So, Kara yeah. from USC sings real often. So we have some young folks and we're going to be bringing Joseph. Joe Wehunt teaches worship at Anderson College. He's going to be bringing more of these students through. And um, quite, a, quite an opportunity for us. Today we conclude our series, Experiencing the Presence of God. We can experience God personally through times of prayer. Are you, are you experiencing that? Is it, is it growing? Is it being enhanced? And these devotional books, Jesus Calling and also Hearing God, are helpful. We go again to where Jesus taught us a pattern for effective prayer in his Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at the first couple of phrases. We're in Matthew chapter 6. And the the prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, although it's actually intended for for us and for the disciples, begins at verse 9. There's a similar prayer in Luke chapter 11 in what is called the Sermon on the Plain. Last week we reflected on the address or the invocation and the first three petitions, all of which focused on God. So take out your Bibles and let's read. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name... Let's read. Do they understand that word? Let's read. Oh, you! Th- oh, they thought I meant silently. You skipped over it. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, though I don't mean silently. This is participatory. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, last week we learned that beginning our prayers by concentrating on God causes us to be God-centered instead of self-centered as we petition for personal needs. Reflecting on the identity of God, His power, His purposes, influences how we pray for ourselves. It infuses more trust, fewer demands, Less desperation into our request. But today we will learn how to pray for personal needs. And so we continue beginning at verse 11. Give us today the food we need. But y'all can read along. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. The first petition is for provision of necessities. And this passage says, give us today the food we need. But most of us memorized it as what? Give us today our daily bread. And bread is the the staple food all over the world, really. And it's interesting, as we begin, it says, give us. Our prayers, because God sees us as a collective. We are His children, the family of God. So we we don't pray just solitary prayers. We pray inclusive prayers, collective requests for us, not just me. It is a whole lot healthier emotionally and spiritually to not be so self-focused. It's amazing how you feel better when you stop focusing on your feelings, isn't it? When you start looking at someone else and being concerned about their feelings, it's amazing how much better you feel. This prayer request is specifically for food. But it implies or it includes other necessities of life. Clothing, shelter, financial resources, physical health. And it also includes or implies the means for supplying those things. So when you say, God give me today the food I need. You're also praying for a way to purchase it. Or if you're a farmer, the ability to grow it. And so it includes employment, it includes medical care. Or any request for food includes a prayer for the farmers, for the ranchers to receive adequate weather and sufficient rain. This request is for each day's essentials. It doesn't include luxuries or extravagances, though God does typically provide more than we need. Is that true? Now, when God gives you more than you need, which I think applies to almost everyone, what does He intend you to do with it? You don't mean that, do you? Y'all really don't mean that. You mean it isn't to hoard it, lock it away, buy some more CDs, invest in a very stable money market? Do you see how we've changed our minds We think if God gives us more, that means we keep more. And yet the scripture is very plain that God will give you what you need and enough to share with others. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Y'all jot that one down. Some of you need to look at that one. The reason that Jesus said to ask in daily increments... Is that God wants us to live in continual dependence on Him. To communicate with Him every day about everything. See, if you ask and you receive, then you give God the glory for what came in. So He wants us to pray every day. Even for practical needs. Now, don't don't turn there now, but Exodus 16 is an enjoyable read. And the Israelites were out in the the wilderness. They'd been led out of slavery in Egypt. And there's about a million of them and not much food, no food. They they took some things with them, but it's all gone. So they're crying for food. What are we going to eat? We're going to starve. We should have stayed in Egypt. And so God sends them... One time he sends them quail and they stuff themselves so much, some of them even die from overeating. But but every day he gave them what? What does manna mean? What is it? That's what it means. That's sometimes what y'all eat at home. (laughs) Don't say it. And don't even say, thank you for the manna, my dear. (laughs) At least don't tell her what it means. and I'm not sexist. Some of you husbands cook quite well. You you create the what is it? But <laughs> Israelites were instructed to gather only enough for what? One day, except Friday, and they gathered what for the weekend, right? They could get two days really for the Sabbath because they weren't to work on the Sabbath. So they could get enough a double portion On Friday, so they had enough on Saturday, they didn't go out and collect. This manna that was like a wafer that would uh, appear on the ground in the morning. But it was interesting. A few of them thought, well, I don't want to come out here twice. And so they gathered more than enough. What happened to it? Literally, it was filled with maggots and it stunk to high heaven. I added the high heaven, but it stunk. (laughs) There might be a lesson. What we hoard becomes maggot-ridden and it is filled with stench. It seems that when we have too much, too many resources, too much wealth... What, what, what happens to most of us? Stop praying. Become self-sufficient. You ever prayed like that? Well, I don't need to pray about this. I've already got this in the bank. You know what I'm talking about, Rick? You don't have to pray, you know, if you already got it. I got this. I don't need to ask. Too much wealth, self-sufficient, even proud. See, we forget where it came from, how we acquired it. And we pull away from God. Anything that causes us to be more independent from God. Is detrimental to not only our spiritual lives. To our lives. We start clinging to what we have. Instead of to God. For our comfort and our security. We all know people who have been severely damaged by wealth. Matthew six thirty three says this. Just a little farther, just on the next page. Seek the kingdom of God above else. Now, in the original, of God is not there. It's implied, but it's not there. Anybody know why? Who's Matthew written to? They didn't write the name God. That's why they talked about the kingdom of heaven generally. So it says, seek first the kingdom implied God, of God, above all else. And live righteously. And he will give you, what? A little bit. Just a little bit. So you can go on the diet and you won't need to pay... I can't remember that woman's name that has the diet plans. Jenny Craig. Forget about Jenny Craig. You're just Everything you need. Do you believe that? Not too much, not too little. Proverbs uh, chapter 30, verse 8b and 9. You can read this. God giving me neither poverty nor riches. Either can be detrimental. Do you believe that if you seek God's kingdom first, if you live righteously, He will provide you everything essential for you? Do you really believe that? You do not believe that. Melvin, you believe that? You think that bunch around you believes it? Okay, here's the question then. Are you content with what you have? Which means, are you content with who you are? Which means, are you content with your placement in life? Are you grateful? Because, see, one follows the other, doesn't it? Doesn't mean you don't get an education or or work hard for a promotion. Doesn't mean that, because even that comes from God. Are you content with where you are? When we look to God as the supplier of all our needs, we are expressing truth which humbles us and honors God. That's a good question for us. Is what I'm doing, what I'm saying, does it humble me, does it honor God? It's a good way to examine, isn't it? It's right for us to acknowledge dependence on God regularly in prayer. Particularly in a culture like ours. Let's just just be honest. Our culture assumes that nature is self-sustaining. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, all this evolution stuff was necessary because you had to get God out of the process. But it makes no sense. You know, if I don't cut my grass, it doesn't become a beautiful house. Our culture believes nature is self-sustaining, self-propelling. If evolution was true, I'd be growing more hair naturally because I need it. Nothing improves by in the environment. It improves by the pattern God placed within. I mean, the truth is DNA eliminates evolution. It's just that if you want to prove there's no God, you'll cling to anything. But if we believe that this universe was created and held together by Jesus Christ... We won't struggle so much with the reality of God. But we have young people being taught God is not essential to anything. Only the foolish and the fearful embrace Him, and then they struggle with the reality of God. It's no wonder. I need some verses. Okay, Hebrew 1, verses 2 and 3, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, John 1, 1 through 4, Acts 14, 15 and 17. All of these places and more say that Christ is the creator, that he is the sustainer of life. Philippians 4.19 says this, 9.49... And this same God who takes care of me, Paul writing, will supply all your needs, not all your greeds. All your needs from His glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Another personal need is pardon for sins. Back to Matthew 6. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Now, this is another evidence that Jesus didn't pray in this for himself. He was sinless and knew he was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.22. He gave this as a pattern for us. Now, the word sin, its not in it's not popular in our culture, is it? But in the New Testament... There are five different Greek terms for sin. All of them describe the failure to meet the standard set by God. I'm not going to give you all the Greek words, but but translated, they mean missing the mark, trespass, transgression, and lawlessness. And, And there's others, obviously, because there's no one English word necessarily that means one Greek word always. But the word that's used here is a Greek word, ophilema. And what it literally means is something owed. A debt. That's what it means. You can find it in Luke 11:4. It's not present in a lot of places in the New Testament. It's also in, in the uh, parable of the two debtors in Matthew 18. Well, what does it mean that we owe God a debt? What do I owe God? You ever thought about that? What do I owe God? We owe God total love and loyalty. We owe God the surrender of ourselves in His service. Occasionally, when it's convenient, all day, every day. And our failure to pay this moral and spiritual obligation is sin. Now, see, we, we think of sin as doing something wrong, right? And so we think, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything. Hmm. Not this word. It may be that some of the saddest sins, maybe the most regretful sins when we really face God, take the form of unpaid debts of the good that we saw and didn't do. Let's think about it. We're thinking, oh, I'm all clear because I'm not doing anything awful. No adultery, no pornography, no, you know, none of those things. But what are you doing positively? You may not be doing something negatively. God expects great things from us. What are you leaving undone? What are you using your hands for? And these are called sins of anybody know? Omission. When you do something awful, that's called a sin of commission. James four seventeen. Nine seventy seven. Toward the end of the New Testament. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Did you know that verse was in there? What are you laughing about, Randy? Let me, I better read that one again. Everybody might not have heard that one. One more time. <laughs> Did he wake up that way? <laughs> Remember. Remember. It is sin to know what you ought to do, what God's tugging at you for. And then not do it. Leaving my debt to God unpaid. Now, we know this. I'm just going to rehearse. But we know that we would be separated from God by our sin. Without hope. If Jesus had not taken on the penalty of our sin. He actually became sin, Corinthians said. So that we would not be condemned. Romans 8.1 And so, faith isn't... Something that you are mustering. Faith means dependence. I am depending on. I'm relying on. I'm trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for me. Do you feel that? That There's weakness in that. There's not strength. I can't do anything. I'm utterly dependent. I am clinging to the sacrifice of Christ as opening the way for me. That's faith. Utter desperation. Complete hopelessness apart from Jesus Christ. But because the punishment has been satisfied, the price has been paid. Someone wrote me a note. I know some of y'all don't think that these get circulated. You put stuff in the offering basket. Some of y'all put awful stuff in the offering basket. But this is written with an orange pen. This is not an ugly note. I was just being funny. but um, This is a note with some sincere questions about Jesus' relationship to the Father. But it's unsigned. And I would love for the person that turned this in To meet me after the service or to send in another one with a phone number on it. That I could call to talk to you about the role of Jesus in relationship to God the Father. But a question arises. If Christ's death, well how many of our sins did it pay for Lloyd? What about the ones that you did after you were saved? Okay. Past, present, future. If it paid for all those sins, even the ones you haven't even committed yet. And if God's verdict that justifies you, He declares you righteous for Jesus' sake. If that's eternally valid, as it is. Why do you need to ask forgiveness? Do you lose your salvation if you don't ask for forgiveness? What about it, Kristen? I didn't hear a word you said. I'm not sure you were confident about that because you sort of said, but it was... That's when I ask my children a question and they go, well... (laughs) (laughs) Here's the answer. The answer lies in distinguishing between God as judge and God as father. Between being a justified sinner and being an adopted son or daughter. The Lord's prayer is a family prayer. In which God's adopted children, but because they're adopted, they're not second class. They're co-equal now with the son as heir. God's adopted children address their father. And even though their daily sins, even the deliberate ones, do, don't overturn justification. See, it's a legal term, justification. It's not overturned. But their relationship with their father will not be right unless they admit the sins and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You notice how when you say, I'm sorry... And I know yours it opens the door of relationship doesn't it? it It like it sweeps out the sweeps out the trash all the stuff that gets in the way isn't it it, isn't it it feels good to come home and know you're on good terms doesn't it Rick? it feels good to go home and, and, and you know you're on good terms it doesn't feel good to go home and you know you're not on good terms and so we we stay on good terms with God. We stay on good terms with God. We stay in intimate relationship. See, I can't stay intimate with a person I'm sinning against, and stubbornly refusing to make it right. You understand that? We've been declared perfect. We've been we've been judiciously rendered sinless in our position, our relationship with God. But we know we fall far short of perfection. In practical terms, we do sin and we must be forgiven. Hebrews 10, 14. Right toward the end, 970. For by that one offering, the offering of Jesus' life, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. You see that? You've been declared perfect, now you're becoming perfect. You are holy, and now you're becoming holy. You see that? You're perfect, but you're improving toward perfection. I don't know that you're going to reach it in this life, or me either. But you see what I'm saying? See, our Father in Heaven, relationally, doesn't ignore or overlook our failings. And I'm going to tell you what, neither should human parents. This codependence is corruption in our children's lives. Because He wants us to grow. So we have to deal with these issues. God loves us, he's not codependent on us. He's not afraid, we'll poke out our lips toward him, sulk about him. He 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 knows his identity. He understands we get crossed up. But he doesn't get all codependent. Did y'all know that? But why do we act like he does? There's poor God just begging, won't you give me a chance? You don't know who God is then. If you understand a holy God chose to love you, declared you holy, and helping you become holy. That's what the relationship is. That feels different, doesn't it? In prayer, we ask God to show us our sins so that we may repent and clear out the garbage. Take out the garbage, all the offenses that are between God and me. But this is, takes courage. Do you want God showing you yourself? Do you? I'm looking for some heads nodding at least. Do you want God showing you yourself? Well, then you have to ask him. I mean, sometimes the Holy Spirit just shines a light on something in conviction. But why not go to him and say, come on and just shine all the lights. As painful as, it's, as they're going to be. Let's get it over with. Our sins offend God. Well well, think about it. If your child sins against you, doesn't it hurt you? If your child is indifferent toward you, disrespectful toward you, dishonouring of you, how's that feel? See, because God's perfect doesn't mean He's without feelings. The Bible's full of the feelings of God. We are in the image of God. Our emotional nature is a reflection of His. Now ours is all marred with wounds and and lies and things. But His is perfect. But He has emotional feeling. We have the most reason and the most resources to avoid sin. We know what He's done for us. We know He's given us the Holy Spirit to help us. And yet, in, in our culture, I mean the American Christian culture, people are just sin freely because my sins are covered. And you know that thing about, well, who are you to say something to judge me? By the way, the Scripture plainly says the church is to judge the church. Plainly, plainly says it. You are to judge. We are to judge each other. The word judge is used by Paul in Corinthians. this It's loving each other when we, when we say, no, no, you're, no uh-uh, you know, you got to get right here. You know what I'm saying? Someone who never corrects you doesn't love you. They're patronizing you. And so if we are sinning freely because my sins have been paid, then we're showing indifference toward the grief that we're given to God. What does that say about your relationship with Him? If my children are unconcerned about the way they hurt me, it says the relationship is in a weak, unhealthy place, doesn't it? Why is it different with God? Are, are we worried about being punished or are we worried that our sins are damaging our relationship and our intimacy with God? Which one? This one's self centered, this one's God centered. Are you concerned about the pain you cause God? That's the question. Return to Matthew. Six. It says. Forgive us our sins. This is a frightening part. The next part. As. We have forgiven those who sin against us. This. this says. Now y'all can correct me on this. But it seems to say to me. That people who hope to be forgiven by God. In the ultimate judgment. Must be able to prepared to tell him that they have forgiven the people that sinned against them. Is that what y'all is that what you read it as? That in order for you to receive forgiveness, you have to be ready to declare that you have forgiven those who hurt you even intentionally. Now, I'm not changing the terms. It's true that forgiveness is by faith in Christ alone, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But a willingness to forgive is evidence of being forgiven. We don't earn forgiveness. But there's a sense from this verse that we seem to have to be be qualified for it by displaying repentance. That there's a change of mind that has happened. Which makes mercy and forgiveness part of my new nature. Are you forgiving? Not just are you forgiven. But are you forgiving? Because if you have a nature that is stubbornly refusing to forgive. What happened to the mercy that you were given when you were regenerated? What about the forgiveness that's been offered to you? Is there someone you need to forgive? I mean, for some of you, this is a, should be a little bit of a frightening passage. Right now, forgive. Bow your heads. Forgive this person right now. Be in a hurry about it. Release it. Take your hands off of it. Are you forgiving of people that have hurt you? I mean, this is such an important passage that Jesus even repeats it at verse 14. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. See, He means it so emphatically that He repeated it. And He also repeats it again in Matthew 18. At the end of a parable about forgiving debts. A third personal need is protection from evil. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Greek manuscripts differ because some translations say, Deliver us from evil. This one says, delivers from the evil one which would be Satan and that is the more likely original intent in the early manuscripts but the distinction doesn't really matter again there's this manuscript evidence it's it ends up meaning essentially the same thing because it means father keep us safe from sin and you say well the difference between sin and Satan is very no but understand this, Satan's not the source of all of our sin. Evil thoughts and improper desires come from within our own hearts and minds, out of the flesh, the physical self, Matthew fifteen nineteen. Now, the words that's translated temptation is a Greek word, pier- pierismos. I'm not saying it too well. but And it means a putting to proof. And so the the Greek word is a neutral word. And it can be translated trial, which we think of as a, a test to strengthen faith. Or temptation, which we think of as a temptation to evil. But they're out of the same Greek word. God does test us. to to refine us, to prove us, to strengthen us in our faith, to build spiritual endurance. But God never tempts us to sin. That's never His intent, though that may be our response. James chapter 1, 974. says at verse 2, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow and not at other times. You grow in the test. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If trials and even temptations are beneficial, or they at least have the potential to be, then why would we pray to be protected from them, right? The reason is that whenever God does test us for good, Satan, the tempter, tries to exploit the situation For our ruin. Don't turn there because of time. But 1 Peter 5.8 says stay alert. Watch for your great enemy the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion. Looking for someone to devour. Satan is cruel and cunning. He knows our weaknesses. He's aware of our susceptibility to sin. And he's interested in damaging our faith immersing us in shame, causing us to mistrust God. And unless we cling to God, rely on Him, and submit to the Spirit, we can easily fail a test. We can certainly give in to temptation. And often we end up blaming and resenting God for not rescuing us. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, you need this one. 923. We need all of them. But this was going to be a short message today. Verse 12. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. When you're all proud and you think, oh yeah, I'm good. Uh Uh-uh, it's coming from a direction you don't expect it. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. So you can't have a pity party. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. But you have to take it. That sin that you got in or you're in today, there was a way out. You just didn't take it. The sin was more attractive than the exit. And that's where we develop endurance As we take the exit. We, we can't ask God to protect us from evil or the evil one if we don't intend to do our part, can we? Will you do your part? Right now, whatever your greatest place of struggle is, you know what it is? Get it in mind. Satan's coming with it. It'll come from different angles, but he's coming. He knows where your weakness is. Do you have a path picked out? Matthew 26 says, keep watch and pray, verse 41, so you will not give into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body or the flesh is weak. We watch. How do we watch? We watch by being alert, looking around. What situation, what people, what places influence and expose us to enticements? And avoid them. If there's a person that's always bringing you down, get away from him. If you have someone, even a romantic interest... That, that's always put, dragging you into sin that you know is wrong, break up. Watch and we pray for strength to do what's right. What we know God wants, what His word tells us to do. So we watch so we avoid the situation. If the situation comes in on us, we pray. James 4, 7 says, humble yourself before the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you know that? A lot of us don't resist. Resist the devil on the front end. When you're not aware of temptation, pray, don't let me yield to temptation. When you are aware of it, pray, God, rescue me from the evil one. Now let's do some soul training this week with the Lord's Prayer. Each day take one phrase and personalize it. Paraphrase it. Apply it to yourself. Like that, don't let me yield to temptation. Say, God, you know I'm weak about this. Don't let me. And personalize it. You see what I'm saying? Go all the way through the Lord's Prayer. You can do one a day and personalize it. We pray every Sunday morning. I'm calling them the watchmen. We pray for you. We pray for this church. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our community. At 8.15, I'm inviting you. Father God, help us. Help us to not rely on what we know, but help us live what we know. Enable us, Lord, to flee temptation and seek your help. In your blessed Son's name I pray. Amen. Counselors are here if you want to talk or pray with someone.